Good morning, everyone. Okay, much better. Thank you. Um, So, you know, it's uh, becoming that cold time of year again when uh, everybody sits on that side to try and catch some sun. Things start getting very lopsided uh, this time of year. All right, well, we are in the Gospel of Mark again. So please turn with me there in your Bibles. It's my joy to open God's Word with you today. And uh, for those of you who don't know, we are working our way through the Gospel of Mark. That's in the New Testament of uh, our Bibles. And uh, we are in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17 today. We're working our way through this book, section by section, seeking to understand what it says and how we should live in light of what each section means. And uh, last week we saw Jesus exercise his authority to forgive sins. And this is something that only God himself, as the creator of all things, And as the King of Kings, only God Himself has the right and authority to forgive sins. Because ultimately, every sin, no matter who we sin against, is also a sin against Him. And we saw Jesus prove that He does in fact have this authority by performing an incredible, absolutely undeniable, no doubt about it, miracle in healing a paralyzed man who got up, took his mat, and walked. And that brings us now to Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Read with me, please. Read along with me as I read. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. So as Jesus is teaching here and a crowd is following him, he passes by a tax booth. And he calls the tax collector seated at that booth, a man named Levi, who we also come to know as Matthew uh, in the Gospels. He calls Levi, this tax collector, to follow him. Now during these times, the nation of Israel was under the rule of the Roman Empire. And Rome would tax the people throughout their empire. And of course, uh, those people under their rule, those people being taxed by them, did not appreciate this. Rome was hated by the Israelites, uh, by the Jewish people. Because they were outsiders. Rome, Rome, of course, were outsiders ruling over them. And the Jews believed, for good reason, because it's all throughout the Old Testament, that God had promised them this land of Israel. So they were not happy at all with these oppressors ruling over them in the land God had given them. And tax collectors were hated They were Jews who worked for the enemy. They collected taxes from the people for Rome. 
and thereby made it possible for Rome to stay in power, to enact their rule. And oftentimes these men were corrupt. You see, Rome would ask for a certain amount of taxes, but the people had to pay these taxes. And so a corrupt tax collector could very easily ask for a little bit more and know that he was going to get away with it. And in so doing, of course, they're not just working for the enemy, but they're essentially stealing from their own people and then hiding behind the protection of the enemy, of the Romans, to get away with it. I think a fair comparison might be if we think about apartheid towns in South Africa, just to try and drive this home. And you think of a black man during apartheid times in South Africa getting rich by being an informant for the apartheid government, sharing secrets of freedom fighters. He's the ultimate example of selfishness and self-seeking. He's getting rich at the expense of his own people. He's getting rich by supporting wicked rulers by betraying his own people. And as a crowd of people surround Jesus, a crowd of people surround Jesus, Jesus points very specifically to this tax collector, a man who is undeniably a tax collector because he's standing behind his tax booth. And Jesus says to him, I want you to follow me. Look with me now at verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. We see now that as Jesus and his disciples share a meal with not only Levi or Matthew but with many tax collectors and sinners. Because as the text says, there were many who followed him. We've talked about tax collectors already, but who are the sinners mentioned in this passage? Well, different commentators, different scholars disagree about this. Um, It does seem that they were friends of the tax collectors, and it's certainly possible then that they were fairly notorious sinners. People like drunkards or prostitutes who, uh, whose overt life of sin marginalized them from polite society in much the same way that tax collectors would have been marginalized from polite society. And so they kind of stick together as, as societal outcasts. It certainly seems possible. And certainly we see in other passages in the Gospels that Jesus did spend time with sinners of the notorious sort, right? With people um, like prostitutes. One example of this is in Luke 7, where we see Jesus interact with this prostitute who's so overcome with his grace and forgiveness, right? That she washes his feet with her hair. In this particular passage, though, it may also be that These sinners are just merely secular people, non-religious people. 
people who didn't attend synagogue or didn't keep the strict religious rules of conduct. could be that these people are, are sinners uh, in the eyes of the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Who basically considered everybody less strict and less religious as them as being sinners. Reading on in verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, or your translation might say the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The scribes and the Pharisees looked down their nose at this. And we've explained in previous weeks that the scribes were students and teachers of God's law. And the Pharisees were a major religious grouping at this time. Very strict in all the observing of the do's and don'ts of God's law. But even going over and beyond that and coming up with additional rules that they created themselves. That they thought made for particularly holy and God-honoring living. And they were not impressed that Jesus was willing to spend time with these people. And especially not impressed that he's willing to eat with them. As one scholar put it, in the culture of that day, mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to just consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating a meal with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, of intimacy, and unity. So you do not share a meal with just anybody. And so the scribes and Pharisees take issue with Jesus. In their minds, Jesus and his disciples should not be befriending tax collectors and sinners. They should not be spending this kind of intimate time with them. So Jesus responds, yeah, look at me in verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So there's this opposition against Jesus, and these people are thinking that he's not doing things the right way, but he doesn't shrink back at all. He compares himself boldly, responds, uh, responds boldly, and compares himself with a doctor, and points out the absolute absurdity of expecting a doctor to spend all his time with healthy people. Of course a doctor is going to spend time with sick people. And a lot of time with sick people. And with very sick people. That's what doctors do. They care for and treat the sick. And the analogy here is that this is exactly what the Messiah must do. He must be with sinners. He must spend time with sinners because he came into this world to rescue sinners. Now, a few questions for us to consider as we think about this passage. Now, first of all, let me ask each of you to give some thought to this question. Are you a tax collector? Okay. Are you a tax collector? 
And by this I don't mean, do you work for SARS? I mean, are you someone who sins or has sinned in ways that bring significant shame and maybe cause people to distance themselves from you? Are you a notorious sinner? Whether people know it about you or not. And now this could be things the world usually has no problem with, but that you know that Bible-believing Christians recognize as clearly sinful. Things like sex outside of marriage, drunkenness, homosexuality. Or it could even be things that even the unbelievers in this world tend to be ashamed of. Maybe you're a thief. You cheat on your husband or wife. You deal drugs. You're a prostitute. You have extreme outbursts of anger in such a way that people don't feel safe around you. Maybe you've murdered someone or raped or sexually abused someone. Or maybe you have children but you never see them. Maybe you're not even in contact with them or don't even support them financially. My friends, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He is a doctor who came for the sick, like you. He is a rescuer who came for sinners like you. In Luke 19, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why He came. John 3, 16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. In Romans 5.8, Paul says, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then verse 10 says, while we were enemies, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of Son. Ephesians 2 says, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Our sin rightly, justly incurred God's wrath against us. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, by grace you have been saved. Imagine, imagine being on an island somewhere. And you and many others on this island are sick and dying. It's been an outbreak of some terrible disease. And a helicopter flies in on a special mission. 
with a doctor on it, with the cure. And as this helicopter comes down through a loudspeaker, the announcement goes out. There's a doctor here with the cure. Come to him and be healed. But you think to yourself, I can't go to him. I'm, I'm too sick. My friend, this doctor came for the sick like you. Jesus came for sinners like you. Go to him for the forgiveness and rescue he offers. That's why he came. 1 Timothy 1.15 Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's why he came. A second question. Are you perhaps a scribe or a Pharisee? Here's what I mean by this. Have you attended church your whole life? Are you one of those people who has never smoked, never been drunk, never had sex out of marriage? You've never stolen something, even something small. You always obeyed your teachers and were respectful. You always did your homework. You always studied diligently. You're one of those people whose friends, when you were growing up, always used to leave you out of things if they were planning something naughty because they knew you wouldn't go along with it. Everyone has always known you as the good person who can't be persuaded to do something wrong. Now, the world may view you as righteous. Your mother might love to brag about you. And your co-workers might be hesitant to tell dirty jokes around you. But do not be deceived. You are not righteous. You are not righteous. Jesus' point in answering the scribes and Pharisees in this passage the way he did was not to say... Uh, was rather, I came for sinners, so don't be surprised to see me with them. That was his point. Not, the tax collectors and sinners need me, but you don't. That's not the point. What does Romans 3.10 tell us? It tells us, none is righteous. No, not one. In the Sermon on the Mount that we see in Matthew, Jesus shows us, That we are much more sinful than we realize. He shows us that if we've been angry, we have committed murder in our hearts. And if we've been lustful, we've committed adultery in our hearts. We like to think of ourselves a certain way. And we like to think more highly of ourselves than we should. We like to justify things away and make ourselves seem more righteous that we, we personally are even more comfortable about that presenting ourselves to the world in a certain way even presenting ourselves to ourselves in a certain way but on a heart level we are all far more selfish far more selfish than we would like to think all of us I heard biblical counseling author Ted Tripp 
share this illustration once. He was telling us what a wonderful relationship he has with his wife. They've been married over 30 years and just thoroughly enjoy one another's company. And through these years, she's supported him and encouraged him so faithfully. She served him so well. You know, and the, the way he put it is like, yeah, you know, 30 years of cleaning my underwear, right? Faithfully, faithfully serving him in all these mundane things. He he talks about how much he loves her. Truly loves her. Appreciates her. Thanks God for her. And then he says, yeah, they both enjoy ice cream. And so, as a regular, uh, you know, fairly regularly at their home, they finish their meal. and, uh, And then he would go and get ice cream from the kitchen and bring it back to the table. And he talks about how he recognized one night that as he was walking back to the dining room, he was looking at these two bowls of ice cream and trying to figure out which one had a little bit more ice cream in it. You know, maybe which one had a few more of the nice things like the chunks of chocolate or whatever else that might be in it, right? And, and why, right? Because he loves his wife so much and wants to give her that one, right? No. Because he wants to put that one at his place and give her the other one, right? As much as he loves his wife, he loves himself more. So much more, right? Despite how well she's loved him for decades, he's still trying to cheat her out of the better bowl of ice cream. Now we we chuckle at that, but honestly, start paying attention to your own heart and you will be very disappointed in yourself. You will see the same dynamics in your own heart, I guarantee you. I remember just even a few months ago, seeing my friend Hamilton and, and my wife and I love Indian food and Hamilton gives me this little container of curry, amazing curry. And he knows how much we love it. So he says, you know, share it with your wife and tell me, tell me how she likes it, right? And then he checks in with me later. How, how did Heather like it? Oh, <laughs> Heather didn't get to try it, <laughs> right? I finished eating it before I got home. I'm a selfish man. Luke 18, verse 9, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified 
rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We are all sick with the disease of sin. We are all dying. And you know, sometimes, right, you see somebody bleeding. It's, uh, you see somebody looking very uh, weak. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe there's snot coming out their nose. Maybe their eyes are red. Sometimes it's very, very evident that people are sick. And sometimes it's not at all. And I think about the actor Chadwick Boseman. You know, he was doing movies like Black Panther, very athletic movies, and he's, and he's, he's ripped, big muscles, and, and uh, you know, he looked as healthy as healthy could be. In his, I think he was in his mid-30s. And then the next thing you hear, he's died. He's dead. When we were watching these movies, uh, some of these Marvel movies, and, and, and he's in these movies looking so healthy, looking like an absolute specimen of health. There's cancer within him, killing him. My friends, you may seem very moral and righteous in the eyes of the world, but you are sick as well. Okay? You're dying as well. We all need Jesus. We all need the physician. Let's go back to our island, right? You're on this island, the helicopters come, here's the doctor with the cure, and the announcement's being made, and you don't go, because you think to yourself, I'm not sick. I don't need the doctor. Don't do that. Jesus came for sinners like you. Now, let's consider some questions. <coughs> How should we follow one who came for sinners? How should we follow one who came for sinners? First of all, amazement. Amazement that he came. This, we're, going to keep, we're going to keep hitting on this through the gospel of Mark. We have to. We have to. We, it can't become old to us that the God of the universe, the creator of everything, the self-existent eternal one, the holy, holy, holy one, the one who sat on his throne and was praised 24-7 by angels hovering around him who would meet his every need. That he came into this world, right? Not for the worthy, not to collect the cream of the crop, not because there was just this wonderful, amazing group of righteous, holy people that obviously he would want to spend eternity with. He came into this world for sinners, for his enemies, for children of wrath. That's amazing came into this world to seek and save the lost. May that never get old to us. 
May it fill our hearts with awe and amazement and thankfulness and praise. We should be humble. We should be humble in light of this as well, right? Our attitude should be exactly the opposite of the scribes and Pharisees. We should recognize we're not called because we've got it all together. We're called by God's grace and mercy alone. And we should remember, if we follow a Savior who came to call sinners, it's not surprising that we read a few weeks ago in Mark 1, when Jesus called his first disciples. It's not surprising that his call, right, he told them to follow him, and he told them that he would make them fishers of men. When we follow him who came into the world to save sinners, we should not be surprised that he calls us to go after sinners as well. We're following after him, and what's he doing? He's seeking out the lost. He's seeking to save the lost. And so as we follow him, we do the same. We go and tell them of his mercy and grace and forgiveness. We go and tell them of all he accomplished on the cross. We should also remember, right? No one is beyond his grace. I'm sure... Every one of us can think of somebody who just seems so caught up in their sin, so uh, anti-God, so strongly, staunchly against Christianity or religion of any sort, and we think to ourselves, nah, let me share the gospel with someone else. (laughs) This This person is not coming around. No one is beyond His grace. Further, no one doesn't need His grace. There is no one... Wait. Yeah. There's no one who doesn't need His grace. I, at a previous church I was at, I came to realize that one man I was uh, trying to disciple in the church didn't fully understand the gospel because... He was convinced that this co-worker of his, who was such a kind person, uh, who was so hard-working, who uh, you know, was just so moral in every way, uh, he didn't see any need to share the gospel with this person. He thought that this person was just fine. And I realized, okay, this man doesn't understand the gospel either himself. Right? There is no one who doesn't need Jesus. And then lastly, we should expect a messy church community. Messy. Right? There can be some uber-religious people out there looking in, thinking to this church, okay, why, why are there so many sinners in there? Why are you spending so much time with people with backgrounds like that? But my friends, we are repentant sinners. That's who we are. We're saved by Jesus. We, every one of us has a past. Every one of us needed a doctor. 
We are repentant drunkards. We are people turning away from our struggles with anger. We are people fighting against our lusts. And we are people dying to prideful self-righteousness and self-dependence as well. We're sinners repenting. We're sinners called to follow Jesus. We are sinners following Jesus, forgiven by Him. The Gospel is this. This is a quote from Tim Keller. Um, Pastor, I'm very thankful for you. Just went to be with the Lord actually just a couple days ago. The Gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Another quote from John Newton. This is towards the end of his life. He says, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things. Very clearly, I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Amen.